Hello, this is The Game Podcast from The Times and I'm Natalie Sawyer. Gregor Robertson is with me and Jonathan Northcroft joins us today. Uh, Jonathan and Gregor, great to have you on board. I'll uh, check in with Gregor on just a moment. But Jonathan, how are you keeping? Very well, thanks. Yeah, I'm loving the weather and um, uh, loving the Bundesliga. And um, it's nice that things are coming back into view football-wise. So, yeah, all good. Yeah. With regards to the Bundesliga, have you always watched the Bundesliga or is it just because it's on and you're tuning in? <laughs> yes. Ever since I was a little boy, I was a, a Berlin fan. I thought um, so. <laughs> no, I've always, I've always quite enjoyed the Bundesliga. Um, for some reason, Aberdeen used to keep getting drawn against German clubs in, in Europe. So I suppose I knew um, a little bit about them, even, even when I was a kid. And I've done a few pieces with Bayern Munich and, and Leipzig over the years. And I mean, there's just some, there's some cracking talent in, in in that league so um it is, it is enjoyable uh, i mean i must admit I've, i i watched dortmund Bayern the other night um mm-hmm. brilliant game from a technical point of view still doesn't look like the real thing but there's enough to enjoy in it to 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 make it worthwhile yeah i agree with you on that one gregor have you been tuning into the bundesliga yeah i watched that game as well um and i agree it's kind of but when it's the real kind of elite level teams like that, it's still a great spectacle. But um, you know, it does it, it isn't quite the same. And you, it's, as we're going to come on to talk about, I think it's intriguing some of the ideas that are being banded around now, just to kind of try and banish that the fact that there's no fans in the stadium from your mind, and so you can focus more on the on the football. But that was a that was a great game, great great winning goal as well. It certainly was. I think it's a game that had everyone hooked. That's for sure. Uh, Gregor. How is the the running going? Are we any closer to doing sub twenty one? Yes, sub twenty one. I've got Ooh. twenty minutes thirty two seconds the other Very day. So sub twenty is in my sights, but. Um... I don't know, it's getting very hot now, isn't it? So I'm going to... time. <laughs> yeah, early morning runs. But no, yeah, I'm improving. You are, that's brilliant. It's not taking that long, really, to get these times down. You're doing very, very well. Um, I obviously don't do any exercise because I'm very lazy. I <laughs> uh, just thought I'd throw that one out there. But what I'll tell you about my eventful week is we have a little puppy who's eight months old and... He'd kind of gone missing for a while. I was thinking, where's he gone? We hadn't really noticed. And then I thought, I better go and find him. Found him in the bedroom and found him basically gnawing away at my previous headset. So my old headset that I've been using to record these podcasts is no more. The microphone has been obliterated. (laughs) So my poor puppy, I don't know how his tummy feels. No, he's all right, really, because he didn't eat it. But it was all on the floor and in an absolute mess. Naughty, naughty puppy. Uh, coming up, we're going to talk Eric Cantona versus Thierry Henry and get the panel's vote on the greatest Premier League import. All that to come after this. Now, it's been a positive week for Project Restart, with Premier League clubs voting unanimously to resume contact training with just four more individuals from three sides testing positive for coronavirus. It means just 12 people have tested positive after 2,752 tests across the league. And phase two of Project Restart will see players train as a group and engage in tackling while minimising unnecessary close contact. And today's news is that June the 17th is D-Day for Project Restart. That has been announced. Aston Villa will play Sheffield United on the 17th and a huge clash will see Manchester City take on Arsenal. So, Jonathan and Gregor, we know when the Premier League is set to start. 
June the 17th, Gregor. Are we surprised that it's going to be back that soon, the Premier League? A little bit. I mean, first of all, happy days. (laughs) A return is in sight. Um, And I'm sure everyone will share that kind of sentiment, even the players. But I know they wanted four weeks. They really wanted four weeks minimum uh, of full contact training, which they've really only just begun uh, begun to be able to do, to be allowed to do. Um, And, you know, even everything up until now has been so limited in terms of, I think it was limited to 75 minutes, 15 minutes. You had a 15-minute window to prepare as well. And then, you you know, 15 minutes afterwards, then you had to leave. So a lot of the the normal uh, preparation work that players do, often injury prevention work and stuff, has been limited. Um, And then, you know, this has already been far longer than than any normal off-season. And they're not going to have any pre-season friendlies, I don't think. Normally you'd have five or six. So it is an issue. You know, a lot of football fans will kind of just go, you know, get on with it and scoff a little bit when people mention this but it's a case of wanting to see your best the best footballers on the pitch and I think the, the Bundesliga has shown already that uh, we saw Erling Haaland come off uh, and other, I think injuries have been up a little bit so it could be an issue we could be seeing players falling a little bit and and you know that's not what anyone wants to see. Jonathan are you excited or do you echo similar reservations that, that Gregor's just mentioned? Oh, a bit, a bit of both. I mean, I, I, I am chuffed that it's, it's going to be back. I think, you know, we've, once the Bundesliga started and we were, we were watching that, that it, it created the, the feelings of, of, you know, what it would be like watching the Premier League teams doing the same. And, and, and I think it moved the whole thing on. I've still got plenty of concerns about how quickly it's happening. You know, just, just the, 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 the obvious um, unknown factors. In terms of, of, of health impact, that's a that's a wider thing about about um, you know all of the country and society opening back up again and the timing of that. So I guess that's not restricted to football. Um, I think there will be an impact on players physically, uh, as Gregor said. This is an unprecedented break that, that, that clubs have had, um, and they're trying to get back far quicker than. Uh, an, an ordinary pre-season, which would I think be about six weeks, is that right, Gregor? Sort of six-week yeah. period with, with with games at the end of it to, to get matched up. And one thing that, that strikes me is that you know most most players are going to start this fit um, because guys who were injured have had time to recover, but nobody's going to start at match fit. So it's it's going to be um, strange from that point of view. Um, I'm sure we will see a glut of injuries. Um, but it goes in the territory of, of what we touched on talking about the Bundesliga. It's not going to be perfect. Uh, we're, we're having to live with um, compromise and one compromise undoubtedly that's being made will be um, player fitness and injury. And, and it looks, you know, the Premier League captains had a had a meeting this week and, and it looks like the players are on board and, and willing to, I suppose, take that risk to a certain extent. So, um yeah, I guess. I guess on we go. It's it, it it's it's anyway. It's gonna be good from a newspaper point of view as well. We can actually start writing about some some football again. Indeed, you, you'll have to start writing match reports. Can you remember that what that was like, Jonathan? <laughs> well, I mean, <clears throat> I was thinking about it might change the nature of match reports because one of the things you do when you're reporting on a game is rather like sort of radio commentators or TV commentators, you try and capture the flavour of the the actual event, but there's not going to be much event to, to capture, if you know what I mean, in terms mm. of atmosphere and interplay with the crowd and intensity. So 
it is going to be, I think, more a more analytical style of reporting. Uh, we want our press conferences afterwards. It will be a kind of some kind of video conference scenario. Um, I, I think there won't be anyone at the at the game, so everyone will be watching on, on TV. So you, your reports are going to be based for people who've who've actually already seen the TV product, um, which is kind of the case anyway. But you still have to bear in mind that you might be reporting for some people who've been to the match as well. So there's going to be a few different dynamics, and and I think. In the next few weeks, newspapers and journalists will have to have a bit of a think about how, how best to, to try and convey all of this and handle it. Mm. Well, broadcasters, we know, are now in discussions over when and how we'll see Premier League football back on our screens. But do we expect the game to be much different when it returns? For example, there have been just five home wins from 27 Bundesliga matches since the restart, but 12 away victories, suggesting any benefits to playing at home are negated. The home win percentage was 42.79 before lockdown. That has now dropped incredibly to 18.51. So, Gregor, could the end of home advantage be bad news for a team like Aston Villa who are at the wrong end of the table? Yeah, I think you know the, the teams who, who ultimately have still got something to play for, it's the I look at someone like Brighton as well, I think they've got Arsenal, Man United, Liverpool and Man City uh, and Newcastle at home, so five games at home and four against <laughs> against the, the biggest teams in the league basically Um and it's it's just part of the kind of the way that the season is never really going to be able to be balanced after it was after it was called to, it was brought to a halt, uh, and it also calls into question the kind of whole idea of whether it was important to to play at home at all in the first place. You know, there was such an outcry about the neutral venues, yeah. um, and we're seeing really that it's not had it's not it's kind of it's been wiped away really. Another thing really has been, I've read a couple of things that's been fascinating about how it changes the way they're refereed. Um, you know, there's a, no matter what a referee tries to do, there's always some element of, of there's been lots of studies about this, lots of some kind of elements of uh, subconscious bias and, you know, no one wants to give a decision that's going to result in having 50,000 fans hurling abuse at them. <laughs> so, you know, it can affect things marginally and, and there have been studies that have shown that when there's no homes. I think there was one in Italy actually when uh, after there was some crowd trouble and I think a game was played behind closed doors and and it showed that the, the imbalance that, that, that imbalance, you know, referees give more yellow cards and more red cards and more fouls against the away team normally uh, and that was that was wiped away when there was when there was no home fans, when there was no fans inside the stadium so, you know, there are going to be elements of that we're see, we've seen happen already in the, in the Bundesliga although it's only been a short sample um i think we probably are going to see the same things in the premier league now mm. jonathan i mean it is quite bizarre and quite startling really how that home win percentage in germany has changed so dramatically since before and now since the since the restart going from 42.79 for a home advantage to home win percentage to, to 18.51 it's quite surprising it is surprising i i mean i would have definitely expected a move in that direction but it's much more stark um, but it's something I was thinking about watching that Dortmund Bayern game. I mean, you, the last ten minutes of the game, Dortmund were chasing an equaliser, and, and you know they had, they had about seven men up front at one point. Matt Hummels was up in the box. They're trying to get the ball wide. They're trying to get it in the box, and you know they're playing in normal circumstances. They would be doing that with eighty thousand fans um, shouting them on, 
and with all of that sort of pressure starting to come onto Bayern, and instead, you know, they're doing it in an empty stadium without that noise, without that that sort of extra bit of, of, of pressure or inspiration. And that tactic itself just didn't, you know, it, it didn't create the normal pressure you'd, you'd expect. And that was just a that was just a microcosm, you know, you, it's hard to put your finger on. But, you know, players have said to me that having fans there makes you, at least the feeling is that it, may, it make, makes you jump higher, it makes you run just half a yard quicker to the ball sometimes. Um, you know, working with, with, with Wayne on his column, he's, he said to me once that um, in a game where, let's say, the, the team had gone flat, and this was for Manchester United, you know, not just at Everton, but the team had gone flat, he would deliberately go and, you know, smash someone in, in, in a 50-50 out on the touchline because what that would do is get the, the crowd suddenly going and it would suddenly get the, 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 the team, the juices flowing again and, and, and it, you could elevate performance just by that kind of physical action if you've got your home crowd behind it. Now, all of that's gone. And I think what happened in the Dortmund-Bayern game, basically, was the best team won. You know, there was no advantage to Dortmund playing at home. So it just came down to the team that was a little bit better winning. And I, I suspect that's probably what's going to be happening more than anything. So those clubs like Norwich or, or, or Watford or Brighton or Villa, who Bournemouth at the bottom, who have got stadiums that do add value to their performance are going to be they're going to kind of be on their own a little bit they're going to not have that advantage and and you know as i said it's not a perfect world but they might look back and think that was a bit unfair at the end of the season if they go down mm. yeah certainly dortmund missed that yellow wall that we all know they're, they're famous for gregor i just sort of wondered as, as jonathan was speaking there i was just thinking there are some players who have said that it doesn't matter if there are fans in the stadium or not. They can concentrate on the job in hand and, and be as professional as they have to be. There are some. Uh, I know that Ollie McBurney, for example, has has suggested that he does like to have fans there because it helps to raise his game, as Jonathan has, has alluded to. Where would you sit when you were a player? How important were fans to you? Yeah, I I think I was on the, the, the side where really the bigger the crowd, the better. And I know there are some players, you know, it's also fascinating if you think about the potential for the opposite to this. You know, there are some players who perhaps slightly, I mean, perhaps not in the Premier League, but, you know, I've certainly played with players who get a little bit overawed in a match day and they're brilliant in training from Monday to Friday. Uh, and they never quite produce the same level of performance in a match day. So you would think perhaps that one or two of them or maybe a couple of younger players that, that, that a club would be more willing to throw in just now. Uh, because there's not the sort of immediate pressure of of thousands of fans kind of being being from the stands. So I, I definitely like without a shadow of a doubt, supporters gave you, I mean, twenty percent, a, a huge 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 difference. Like adrenaline, twenty percent. I think so. Honestly, you kind of from playing in empty stadiums or or even in even in front of smaller crowds, there is something about playing in front of a big. A big, uh, a big stadium, a big, big support, a big fan base against big clubs as well, you know, and 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 the atmosphere, and it's very hard to articulate. It's, it's just, it just raises your kind of whole sensory experience of the thing, of being of being out in the pitch. Uh, Wembley was the most exhilarating. Playing at Wembley was the most exhilarating football game of my my life, and it was you couldn't hear yourself shouting, and. But it was just—it was just extraordinary how kind of alert you felt 
playing in that in that environment. So certainly for me, I I, I enjoy playing a, more in front of a big crowd than than playing at Accrington Stanley, and you can hear the individual abuse <laughs> showed from the stands, <laughs> which also I did unfortunately experience too. Oh no, I can't believe it, Gregor. <laughs> but of course, players will have to get used to empty stadiums for a while, as they will with some of the rule changes that have been brought in. FIFA will allow teams an extra two substitutions to cover for injuries and cramps suffered by the players. 89% of Bundesliga teams use more than three substitutions on the first weekend. So, Jonathan, do, do you think we might expect key players to be subbed earlier in games, to be ready for the number of fixtures that are to come? I, th- I think they'll have to. The, the sports science aspect is going to have to be very, very carefully thought out and um, number of minutes. I mean, I, I, you know, I, th- I think a lot of the sports science is done and I know Liverpool do this. It's it's actually they look at a number of minutes that a player is used to having basically and, and every player is different. Every player's got a certain load that they're is kinda of near the maximum, their optimum that they can take. So um, that's why Klopp sometimes plays players in games where you might expect him to give them a rest because what he's trying to do is get that player up to their sort of let's say thousand minutes in that two month period that he's working in or whatever it is so I think the number of minutes over the, the time that's something for the sports scientists to, to work out um, I'm looking forward to Jose Mourinho doing the first five quintuple substitutions at half time when his team's losing <laughs> just get rid of half the team I think he's always wanted to do that his whole career he's got the opportunity <laughs> to do that now um, I guess there's a lot of potential little advantages that, that managers can try and get in this changed scenario and maybe the manager that uses substitutions best could gain a little bit of a, an advantage in this period because he's got extra extra ones up his sleeve yeah marginal gains we always hear about that and i'm sure as you say managers will be looking to use these five substitutions in the best way that they can the lack of crowd noise in the stadium has also led to another problem in the bundesliga the referee is hearing everything that the players and managers say. Of course, the Bayern manager, Hansi Flick, was given a telling off by referee Tobias Stieler in the second half at Dortmund on Tuesday after saying something out of turn. Gregor, in the heat of the moment, the heat of the battle on the pitch, do you think players, now knowing that noise will not be drowned out by a crowd, will be able to hold their tongue? I think so, yeah. I think most players are actually more cute than you would give them, give them credit for. I think a lot of the time when you're throwing a barb towards the referee or you kind of do it a little bit under the cover of the noise around you. Uh, or, you know, you, you do it when you're running away. But this is the thing where uh, there might be a little adjustment period where <laughs> where they do that and you, and the referee still picks it all up. But, you know, I think I, I certainly read that the dissent is, is down as well in the Bundesliga. I know that, that there's been a couple of instances, but... I think it has been it has been down on the whole in the in the first two weekends, um, so I think this is something that players will will adapt to pretty quickly. Actually, okay, players can. Jonathan, what about managers? We know that they can be carded for their fruity language. Can they can they be just as respectful? They'll have to be. I, I, I've always wanted to uh, to see what would happen in this kind of scenario because I've, I've, I've felt for a long time that the way to stamp out dissent would be to mic up referees just because human nature it, it would make managers or players think twice and, and now we're here you know we will be able to hear everything they they say um well i don't know how manager <clears throat> plays that with 
with tactical instructions. But I mean, of course, the other aspect is managers spend a lot, spend a lot of time screaming from the sidelines, and players can't hear them. Well, they'll be able to hear them now. And that's another little little dimension. Um, so, yeah, inter interesting one. I mean, we could hear them in the in the Dortmund Bayern game. Um, you know, it was in German, but you, you, you could, you could. I think it was Hansi Flick that kept saying "spiel, spiel," which is play, play, and um, that you know, for the kind of football nerd, it's just fascinating hearing the kind of stuff that's getting shouted on, and we'll get to to hear a bit more of that from from Premier League managers, which will, which will be really good. Mm. Is one fluent in German, Jonathan? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, just checking. Voltank, no, Voltanken bitter. Uh, oh, I remember that from second year German, which I feel like. <laughs> that's about it. Yeah, ich, ich habe einen Bruder. I remember learning that. I have a brother. Thank you. Yeah, I know. I'm impressive. But what about what about artificial crowd noise? Henry Winter has written a piece for the Times with the headline: "Artificial crowd noise is an acceptable temporary fix." But don't forget, fans are heart and soul of the game. Bundesliga games do not currently have noise pumped into the stadium, though American broadcasters did choose to put their own artificial noise onto their broadcast pitches to make the experience seem more normal for the TV viewer. I think it was a, a bit of Marmite for that one. Some people loved it. Some people weren't so sure. Would we like to see crowd noise in stadiums or on TV, Gregor? I was quite impressed with the kind of the oh. realism of that. Actually, um, I think there's two. You know, there's two sides to this. One is the TV experience. So, you know, I think there's there's talk of it being an option, like a red button option. If you want to have uh, the sound, then you could turn it on. Um, and then the other the other thing is the experience for the players on the pitch. So, you know, we've seen the the all the, the cutouts in the stand. Uh, there's been lots lots of things uh, mentioned just now. And I suppose it's really up to it's how it depends how the players feel. I think personally, I'm trying to try to put myself in the position where I was playing on a pitch and I was hearing artificial noise coming over a tannoy, or you know some of these things where there's there's talk of an app where fans can give their reaction and that would change the noise and things. I'm not too sure about that. I think I think players will get on with it and they'll be fine playing the game in the stadium. As it is just now, or as it is just now in the Bundesliga, anyway. I think the TV experience is another matter. I think if if you can give supporters the option, then all very well. And the, the, you know the other things like the the, the cardboard cutouts and stuff. If that's a way that with some of the most devoted fans, you can sort of have that connection with the club. You know they're sending in photos. I think, and you can stick your photo on your seat in the stadium. You know, if that raises money or sort of makes that connection with the support the fan base a, a little bit with some of the most devoted fans then there's nothing wrong with it I'm, you know a lot of people are kind of turning their nose up at these things I think uh, any way that you can sort of connect the fans with the team or with the, the club then then that's fine by me Jonathan crowd noise in stadiums or on the TV or is there anything else that you could think of that could enhance the experience for us in the in the meantime? Well, I, I mean, I, I like the cardboard cutout vans just just from not, you know just from the point of view that it was it was a way of of trying to personalise and involve supporters that, that might have some sort of value. Of course, it's not like real fans, but it was I it was a nice idea. I'm, I'm not sure about the the noise. I have to say, um, it, it would work as something that you could tune into into TV, but I think to actually play it into the stadium just 
feels like it would it would just be a bit bit odd, a bit weird. And that, as the, the Tom Roddy's story about the the Japanese app is quite interesting. Um, but of course, if your first sort of thought is how technology like that might be misused by certain supporters. If they could use that to send chance into the stadium. Um, you know, call me a cynic, but um, <laughs> I think it's more it's more for the TV viewer. It's it's something you know with with a red button with with an option would be fine. Um, but it's, you know, these it's, it's a small detail, I guess, and and it comes back to that fact that. It, the the single worst thing about the football we're about to see is that it will be the absence of supporters. And Henry's right; they are the lifeblood of the game, and and they are you know they give the twenty percent that Gregor talks about, and and that is going to be really hard to stomach over a long period of time. And we need to be prepared for that. And, and nothing we can do, whether it's apps or cardboard cards, really is ever going to replace that. So. Um, we're going to enter a phase where football's just, it's just not going to be as good until fans come back. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. In the Times today, the greatest series continues with a debate over the greatest Premier League imports. Alison Rudd puts forward the case for Eric Cantona. She says a title winner at Leeds before making the move to Manchester United for a fee of around a million pounds with Leeds boss Howard Wilkinson pleased to see him go. What followed was Manchester United's first league title in 26 years, followed by a period of dominance that saw Cantona and United win four of the next five titles with only Blackburn slipping in whilst Cantona was suspended for that Kung Fu kick. Now, Alison believes he is the most influential overseas player to feature in English football and doesn't believe a player has since existed who possesses his all-round ability. No other import will ever match his aura, says Alison, which culminated in his goal to beat her beloved Liverpool in the 1996 FA Cup final, which left her purring over the Frenchman's ability rather than dwelling on her own team's defeat. So, Jonathan, what was it like to witness Cantona in the flesh? Oh, well, I've got to disappoint you. I'm not quite that old, actually. Oh, um, <laughs> how wrong am... of me to assume. No, no, it's fine. I am actually that old, but it, I, I just happened to be reporting in Scotland at the time. Um, I did come down to England and do a couple of United games in that era, um, but uh, I, I, had, I checked before coming on, actually. Cantona wasn't on the pitch, but of course oh. I, I, you know, I, I watched him avidly um, on, on TV at the time he was playing, and he... He was just this uh, this this figure of, of absolute charisma and and difference and and um, exoticism and, and all those kind of things. I mean, there's a there's a Glaswegian phrase that Greg will know very well, but a word rather gallus and and Canton had this gallusness about him, but with a sort of French uh, twist to it. And you know, I played I played five sides with a mate who wore his collar up. Ever, ever, from the moment Kant and I stepped on the pitch, this is, a, this is a grown man. He started wearing his collar up. He just had, he had this charisma about him, but he was also a different type of player um, to certainly the one 
the ones that Manchester United had had. Um, I mean, there were four, you know, and of course Leeds United had Cantona first. So there were. It's not like you know, there were the beginnings of that sort of slightly different foreign way of playing tactical ideas and, and, and different skill sets coming in. But he was because he, he because he changed Manchester United, I suppose, and because Manchester United, as a result of those changes, went on to achieve what they achieved. Um, that's that's the. The, the influence he had, plus the charisma that, that made him appeal outside, as Alison writes about so well, outside of that Manchester United fan base as well, and an absolutely remarkable figure, compelling footballer. Well, James Gearbrandt puts forward the case for Thierry Henry. During his prime between 2001 and 2006, he won the Golden Boot in four seasons out of five, an achievement matched only by Jimmy Greaves in the history of the English top flight and which no foreigner nor anyone in the Premier League era has come close to replicating. The one season that he didn't finish as top scorer, 2002-2003, he recorded 20 assists, establishing a Premier League record that still stands. Henri is probably the only player who could claim to have simultaneously been the best goal scorer in the Premier League and the best creator then. Uh, in a world before Lionel Messi, he paved the way for the versatile fluid forwards that litter the game now. And James also believes Henri's work rate off the ball is a blueprint for the way Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool have taken the Premier League by storm. And here's two fun facts that highlight the impact Henri had on society, not just football. Number one, in the early noughties, there were two songs that reached number one after being popularised by football commercials. A Little Less Conversation by Elvis Presley versus JXL and Are You Ready for Love by Elton John. What's, what's the link? Well, Henri starred in both adverts. Secondly, his car advert even propelled a new phrase. Vavavoom, if we all remember. That went into the pages of the Oxford English Dictionary. James concludes his argument by saying there has never been another Premier League player like Thierry Henry and there probably never will be. It's quite a lengthy argument that James has put forward. So, Gregor, do you think you could add anything to back his case for Thierry Henry? This is a great piece. I would urge anyone who's not who's not read it to go and read this. Um, both really well well argued. Um, I think I think that it's the James also makes this point, but it's it's the moments, the kind of moments of individual brilliance, as well as the whole, as James argues, the the selflessness of his play. You know, he 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 wasn't someone who just stood around up front. He worked hard, but he also combined that with so many moments. I was watching some of his his footage uh, earlier on today and so many that you could just describe and people would know, remember instantly like his little back heel he scored when he was holding off the defender and he scored a back with a back heel in the, into the far corner uh, the flick and volley against Manchester United kind of holding off Dennis Irwin I think it was um, and he there's he took up a position that little position kind of between the lines dropping into the left and running at defenders, and that almost became a trademark on goal, where you know he would put a defender on their bum with a dummy, or he would just kind of glide past them. And I, I mean, I, I think he would have been terrifying to play against. So athletic and agile, uh, and struck the ball so cleanly. And it, something <laughs> this may sound strange, but it, it brought to mind something this morning. Like when I, it brought to mind like a man amongst boys a little bit sometimes because I, I remember when I was when I played youth team football and I was kind of 
maybe 12 or 13. Uh, and I used to score maybe 15 goals a season from left back. Bear with me here. And uh, it, basically, I could strike the ball quite well. And if you if you struck if you struck the ball, if there's a 12 year old kid in goals and you struck the ball well and it's on target, the chances are it would fly past the goalkeeper before you could have a chance of saving it. And watching on replay some of some of his goals, it was almost like that. It was he struck the ball so cleanly and he found the corner so easily um, that he he almost looked like he was kind of on a different planet to everyone else around him at his peak. Uh, and the way he kind of stood defenders up and and then just ex- a burst of explosive pace. He was just genuinely unplayable, I think, in those in those peak years. I think James says between 2002, 2006, something like that. Uh, he was literally unplayable at, at, during that time. So, um, yeah, a fantastic player. Does that mean then, Gregor, if you had to pick between Henri and Cantona as the best Premier League import, that you would favour Henri? I would, yes. I... You know, the, the, there are things that are similarities and that, you know, they, both of them, I think, as Johnny just alluded to there, they didn't really fit a mould. They kind of, you know, they weren't a, an out-and-out striker in a four-four-two, that which was the kind of the way most teams played at, at, at the time, certainly in their, when they first came to the Premier League. Um, you know, Henri, as I said, he dropped deep and, and roamed to the left and, and Cantona was at his best in those spaces between the lines. And, and the other thing they both did was married kind of immense power with like beauty <laughs> and grace you know and that's rare you get you, usually a player will have say like a Cristiano Ronaldo he's someone who is immensely powerful I wouldn't much you really describe him as graceful or Dennis Bergkamp was a graceful footballer he didn't quite have the same kind of speed and power as as, as either of those two so the fact that they, they both combine those two things I think is with the kind of Swagger and the cockiness and the the kind of uh, well, to, I'd say to some people sexiness as well. You know, that's Henri was <laughs> Henri was a bit of a pinup, I think, at that time with his with his adverts. Um, you know, I think that's really what elevates them above most people. But I would go for Henri probably, and that all comes down to his productivity too. 175 goals. Aguero was the only player from overseas who's, who's who can top that and. Aguero's all-round play is just not really on the same level as, as Henri. So Gregor is doffing his hat to Henri. Where do you stand on this debate, Jonathan, between Cantona and Henri? Oh, it's, it's a brilliant debate, it really is. Because you're talking about you know Cantona, who's a player that changed... He changed, basically, the, the, the history of English football because he, he had that impact on Manchester United that just turned them from nearly into... Uh, the, the the real winning machine that they became, and he influenced the class of '92 and in, in his in his attitude and, and detail he put into training. He 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 was a blueprint for more foreign imports to arrive. But then Henri, somebody who not just underpinned Arsenal's success and and the greatest Premier League season, arguably with the Invincibles, but he probably influenced more than just Arsenal. You know, he he he, he I think James is right. His blueprint for the 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 uncategorizable goal scoring attacker who takes up different positions goals coming from the flanks necessary or, or from starting positions on the flanks rather than through the middle that's actually the football we see today you know that's a lot of the scorers we see today playing that role and um it almost 
it almost comes down to just who was the better footballer. And, and I, I just think Henri was slightly the better footballer. You choose him between two geniuses. So I'm not sure if Henri's the greatest foreign player to play in the Premier League. It's, you've got to throw Cristiano Ronaldo into the mix. But then again, for what Henri did in England, probably more than some of what Ronaldo did. But do you, do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's a difficult one. But if you're just choosing mm. between those two, I think I would have to say just Henri. Okay. Well, in the article, there are notable mentions for Cristiano Ronaldo, uh, Sergio Aguero, Patrick Vieira and David Silva in the discussion for greatest Premier League import. We also asked you on Twitter for your suggestions for the greatest Premier League import. Mark Lucas got in touch, says I'm a Spurs fan and even I have to say Henri. Neil Owen has gone for Dennis Burkamp, a class player who came into the game when it wasn't fashionable, probably responsible for encouraging other players to come to the Premier League as well. Uh, James Ryan is surprised that Aguero hadn't got a mention in that uh, initial tweet. I'm a United fan, so obviously I think Ronaldo has to be a consideration, but Aguero and company transformed them from a rich team of individuals to perennial contenders. Johnny Bell says, don't forget Gianfranco Zola. Alex Butcher has gone for the magical, majestic, magnificent David Silva. His control, his vision, his trophy cabinet, an outstanding servant to Manchester City and an incredible influence on English football. And Ian Hollingsworth agrees. He's gone with David Silva. Uh, He says, I named my dog after him as well and he sent us a picture of his dog so thank you for that Ian we do we like doggy pictures and some uh, more left field suggestions I think you might gather perhaps who these people support maybe from the players that they've picked Calvin's gone for Mishu at Swansea you'll never get more bang for your buck he says Malcolm Jacob has opted for Adel Tarabd I know of Malcolm he's a QPR fan so that figures and Stevie Bith has gone for Lucas Radaby what a guy so loads and loads of players there for us to discuss. But do any of them or another name get your vote for greatest Premier League import ever, Gregor? It's blooming hard. I think Johnny's right in that Ronaldo, uh, you know, he arrived as a kind of skinny, almost show pony and left as the second best player on the planet. And I don't think you'll ever see anyone improve in front of our eyes season by season like that ever again. Uh, it was extraordinary to watch. And, and, you know, he is among the greatest footballers to have ever lived and He's, like I say, in the top two at the moment still probably. So, um, but, but his impact on the Premier League, there's so many judgments you can make about this. You know, his impact on the Premier League Henri's and Cantona's is arguably arguably kind of more in the in the sort of the rise of the Premier League as uh, as a product and as a game. So um, I'm going to stick with Henri. I think he is probably. I think he is. I think he's the he's the kind of the greatest Premier League uh, overseas player that there has ever been. Okay, and I know Jonathan, you mentioned Cristiano Ronaldo, as did James Ryan, as I mentioned a little bit earlier on. Although that wasn't his pick. Uh, in the end, he actually went for Aguero. So, where would you stand? Is is Cristiano Ronaldo the best overseas player to have played in the Premier League for you? Well, the thing that gives me sort of thought about Ronaldo is that in the history of of, of, of football, have how many of the world's very greatest players ever played in England? I think apart from Ronaldo, you'd have to say George Best, 
but any you know probably that's it if you're talking about um outfield players of course mm. you know peter schmeichel and goals but but in terms of outfield players you know those debates about the world's best ever footballers and maybe there's about 10 names that get thrown in the hat the only one the only ones that have played in english football are probably best and um and and and, and ronaldo um but if we're just trying to it's, it's criteria isn't it if we're just trying to say about what they did in the premier league um i wouldn't look past on the there's probably an argument for saying him and ryan giggs would maybe be the two greatest premier league footballers of, of all um in the in the list did was did was drogba mentioned at all because i think no, not Drogba. not in the ones that we've picked out, but it may well have been in some other responses that we just didn't see. Well, I, I just, I, I mean, he comes to my mind just because um, what you're looking for is footballers who have like a profound influence on um, on their club, but also again on how football's played beyond that. And I think Drogba did that. I think he he was the the giant that, that overall carried that Chelsea team, but also after Drogba, a lot of teams were were, were looking for Drogba like. Um, players, you know, guys who could just be a one-man forward line like like he was. So I think he changed the game a little bit as well and, and, and probably deserves a mention. Just as I'm looking through some of the responses, there was one, one Drogba. Alan Kars mentioned Drogba as a possibility as well. So thank you for everyone that tweeted us their responses. Now to finish off, we've asked Gregor and Jonathan to compile a Premier League import five-a-side team, possibly a toughie. I should warn you that the referee on this game podcast, Tom Clark, has said he'll be handing out yellow cards for any Scottish (laughs) bias and the inclusion of Henrik Larsson, John Collins, or Miksu Patalainen. (laughs) Let's see. I think producer Max was just turning me down there when I was about to interject with Henrik Larsson, actually. Cheers, cheers, Max. Well, I am wondering if you're both having to hastily rewrite your five-a-side team following the rules that have been brought in place. But, Gregor, have you got your five-a-side team for me? Yes. I. This is going to be probably controversial, but I, I'm going to go for Van der Sar as a goalkeeper. Oh, okay. I know a lot of people would say it's got to be Schmeichel, and other people would possibly look at Petr Cech as well. But... I, it, I think the thing that I always valued most in goal in goalkeepers I played with was were consistency and calm, calm and composure. And I don't really think there's anyone being quite that's kind of mastered those two things in quite the same way as Van der Sar. And he was also phenomenal with with the ball at his feet. His distribution was magnificent, which is you know so highly valued now. It wasn't quite as much at that point. Um, you know, I think he had a record where he got 14 consecutive games without conceding uh, one season. Uh, four Premier League titles in six seasons. So, I, yeah, you know, a lot of people will say, no, no chance. It's got to be Schmeichel. But I, I understand Schmeichel's a huge character and whatnot. But I think I would have probably liked to play uh, in front of Van der Sar. Uh, okay. So that's my goalie. And then... I think if you're picking a defender, an overseas defender, probably any defender, it has to be company. I think it has yep. to be Vincent Company. Um, I think Van Dyke has the potential to match or potentially supersede him. But you know, for a leader, uh, an all-round defender, there's not really. I don't think there's been any better import. Um, I think for a midfielder, I'm going to go for David Silva. 
And there's so many, you know, there's so many players you could think about Vieira or, you know, another player who's not come into this is Roy Keane, who is technically of, you know, yes. an import. You'd have been able to put him in. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of people would pick Roy Keane because of, again, the influence he had on those around him and, and on Manchester United and, you know, one of the greatest teams that, uh, well, probably the greatest team that the Premier League's seen. So, um, but I, I'm going for David Silva. This is a five-a-side team as well, so there'll be no better five-a-side player than David Silva. <laughs> Technically, there's not been many better. Those little through balls, and and he's almost improved when since Guardiola came, although this season he's waned a little bit. But um, 90 assists, only, only Fabregas and Bergkamp have had more among overseas players. Then Thierry Henry for the... Uh, aforementioned reasons and then Ronaldo again I've, I've, I've said he from what he arrived as to what he left as is, was just a remarkable feat and when you hear you know the stories after, since about his dedication to there's no no one really being as dedicated to their craft as as Cristiano Ronaldo and and uh, I don't think you could have pick a certainly pick a team without him in it really Okay, it's a very strong team, I have to say. Although I'm sure a lot of people will debate, as you've pointed out, your pick for goalkeeper. Let's <laughs> see how strong Jonathan's team is. Who have you got? So I've got Ryan Fraser, Ian Jess, Fraser 5 <laughs> 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 um, Interesting. No, no. Um, uh, I, I mean, look, I, I, Greg has made some very good arguments there, uh, and it's it, it's choosing between brilliant players, isn't it? I, I would go for Schmeichel. Uh, I, I just think he is the, the the greatest goalkeeper of all time. Um, he patented the sort of concept of the attacking goalkeeper, the way he distributed the ball. He was a handball player when he was a kid, and, and handball's kind of almost yes. a very fireside-ish kind of game. So he was always looking for that quick bit of distribution and made unconventional saves, which is good for five-a-side, so that's why I put him in. Um, I think company is outstanding as, an, as, as, a, as a sort of colossal figure, but I think Van Dijk's a slightly better footballer, and if we're talking five-a-side, then you probably want to have as close to total football as you can get, so I put, I put Van Dijk in, and I've got, I mean, my notepad, I've just been crossing names off and, and putting them back in, and, and I keep... Like Patrick Vieira is one of my favourite players um, that I've seen in you know in in my, in my lifetime, and I keep wanting to put him in, but I sort of think might not, just might not need him. You know, five aside, it's about attacking and scoring goals. So I've actually put I've definitely good for David Silva, just a genius, a five aside player if ever there was one, and I'm going to pick Luis Suarez, um, and he can be my he can be my midfield as well because. I just think he would be absolutely, he'd be horrible to play against. He'd be everywhere on the pitch. Um, but what a player he was in tight spaces, what a player he was at that little trick to just go past someone or, or even go through them, the nutmegs and stuff, all the stuff that five sides about. And then I think the, the last two pick themselves, which would be Henri and Ronaldo. But then I'm leaving Aguero out, which feels ridiculous. Hang on, hang on. So you're going for Thierry so, Henri. How many, is that six? No, no, no. So... Uh, no, Ronaldo, Henri, Suarez, Silva. Um, oh, I have picked six. That's I? what I mean. You've got the. <laughs> oh, oh dear! Yellow card oh, right, well. already. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. uh, have you got a bench? 
<laughs> Come on, yeah. who are you going to... I need five who are you oh, well, I'll have to drop Suarez. I'll have to drop. Oh. He get sent off anyway, didn't he? Henri <laughs> Silva, Ronaldo, Van, uh, Van Dijk and Michael in goal. Okay, all right. So just to recap then, Jonathan's team would be Peter Schmeichel in goal. You've got Virgil van Dijk as your defender, David Silva, Henri and Ronaldo. There aren't, I yeah. mean, it's only, it's only defenders and goalkeepers that are different from both of your teams because, Gregor, you went for uh, van der Sar in goal. Vincent Kompany is your defender. Then you also have David Silva, Thierry Henry and Cristiano Ronaldo as your team. Both, again, very, very strong. I'm not sure who would come out on top in this one. But I have to say, if I was erring towards one, I think it would be Jonathan's. And that <sighs> might be, it might be down to, to Peter Schmeichel in goal. But then again, I, I liked your argument, obviously, for Peter Schmeichel. Uh, and the one downfall I'd say for Peter Cech is, is perhaps his inability to play out, as we know, mm. from the back. But he does top the... Uh, the Premier League clean sheet record, didn't yes. he? Yeah. Check 202, which is 33 more than any other player. David James, second on the list. So there was a part of me that thought maybe Czech deserves to be in there. But, you know, if you want to have that play out from the back and be quick and, you know, maybe maybe Schmeichel is the one to, to go for in that one. So I think I will be opting for Jonathan's five-a-side team. Hey. Over mm. yours, Gregor. Even though originally <laughs> Jonathan tried to cheat and have six players. Six a team was good. Um, but just to clarify you didn't go for Roy Keane did you you kind of suggested you might put Keane in there but in the end you you opted out for for your team Gregor yeah I mean you know like like we said there's so many uh, ways to measure a a true great you know and and it's not always in technical ability actually that's that's the truth of the matter it's on it's in leadership and and your influence on those around you and I don't think there's been anyone in the Premier League history, really, whose influence on those around him has been like that of Roy Keane. Uh, and that showed in the silverware that Manchester United won. So he could easily be in a, in a team. If it was 11 aside, I'd probably put, stick him in there. But I think uh, on a five-a-side pitch, he'll take David Silva all day. <laughs> Love it. Both really good teams. Well done, both of you. That is it for now. Many thanks to Gregor and to Jonathan. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. It's just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Just search The Times subscription for more information. We will be back with you on Monday for the very latest game podcast. Enjoy your weekend. Ultimately, stay safe. Stay safe.